Welcome to Leadership Backstage, a series of unique conversations with leaders about their role today and tomorrow. Hi, my name is Tricia Schroeder-Hohenwald. I am an executive coach, an organizational consultant, and the owner of DSH International HR. Another podcast about leadership, seriously? Yes, but somehow different. Over the years, I have been involved in lots of discussions about leadership. What it is, what it is not, what it will be, what it should be, and so on. But from my perspective, far too little open discussions have taken place with leaders about this subject. This is what I want to change here. I want to give leaders a voice, listen to what they say, and see what we can all learn from each other. And also, I have worked with many great leaders in the confidential space of our coaching sessions. But this time, it's not a conversation behind closed doors. The leaders here have accepted to share their thoughts openly, and I hope you will enjoy this backstage view on leadership. It's very nice to be able to talk to you today and um, yeah, welcome to this podcast. Could you please first introduce yourself and your role in this company? Thank you, Dresia. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I am the Chief Investment Officer at Blue Bay, a UK-based asset management company with uh, 410 employees. Uh, we manage money for third parties. We are specialized in fixed income. And our clients are primarily institutional, so primarily pension funds and life insurance companies. And tell me a bit about your, your current responsibility in terms of leadership. You are a team of management. So what, what is specifically your role? So as chief investment officer, I am responsible for the investment side. So you could say that my responsibility is first and foremost to make sure that all the funds that we manage perform well. So it's the engine room, if you will. Obviously, there are other departments in the company, the, the, the sales function, the back office function, the IT function, and so on. And my responsibility is really with the production. So I'm responsible for about a quarter of the workforce, just in excess of 100 investment professionals at Blue Bay. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, again, my task is to make sure that investment performance is strong. Obviously, you could, you could argue that uh, everything starts with that because if we generate strong investment performance, we're going to have strong products for our salespeople to sell to our clients and our clients are going to be happy. If investment performance is poor, obviously, clients are going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. They may leave. Uh, salespeople will find it much more difficult to uh, sell our funds. We are active managers. Really, the, the added value that we bring to our clients is strong investment performance. So obviously, my responsibility from that standpoint is very central to what the firm does. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, you've been in this business for, for quite a long time. So tell us a bit about your journey and um, how you started also in London. So I don't know, maybe some, some people uh, can hear it, but you're not a British citizen. So I actually uh, recently took uh, um, British citizenship. So I'm, I'm now a, a, a kind of a, a dual citizen of France yeah. uh, and the UK, obviously, with the uncertainties around Brexit. Uh, having lived in the UK for the last 20 years, my three children were born in the UK. So 
uh, it felt like the the right thing for us to do. Uh, obviously, we can talk on on Brexit later on as well, but it's brought a, a lot of uncertainty for all the uh, members of the European Union who live in the UK. Um, as you may know, in London, there is more than 500,000 French people based there, and obviously very large Italian, German, Spanish communities, and so on. So obviously, there's a, a lot of uncertainty for all of us. Um, I uh, started my career actually in London back in 1996 mm -hmm. for a BNP asset management for a while. Then I worked for Saudi International Bank, managing uh, um, large um, institutional portfolios for big Middle Eastern companies. And then I was uh, head of European credit at Invesco for three years before I joined Blue Bay back in 2003. When I joined Blue Bay, it was a very small firm. Uh, the firm was uh, created back in 2001 to take advantage of the, the launch of the euro and the way euro-denominated corporate bond market was really coming to life. Uh, there was also a, a strong focus on emerging markets. One of the vision behind the firm was that emerging markets were going to grow very strongly for the decades to come to the point where emerging markets would represent more than half of global GDP by 2030 yet they were dramatically underrepresented in clients' portfolios, so there was a, a very positive dynamic there. So what's been very, very interesting in this experience for me is when I joined Blue Bay, it was a private company, uh, so uh, all the key team heads, myself included, were shareholders in the business. We then listed the company back in 2006, and Blue Bay eventually became a member of the FTSE 250, so a, a reasonably large listed company. And then in 2010, Blue Bay was bought by Royal Bank of Canada. So since 2010, we have been a fully owned subsidiary of a much larger financial group. So it's been fascinating to look at the, the three different stages as a smaller private company. Uh, I was employee number 16 when I joined the firm. So obviously, oh, wow. uh, it was a, a very different firm to the, the firm it is today with 410 employees. Uh, then obviously as a, a listed company with the need to produce quarterly uh, earnings for the market and uh, all the kind of uh, um, communication challenges associated with that. Uh, and also the fact that there was a, a kind of a, a stock price that was visible for, for everyone. So during the financial crisis, the employees could see saw the stock price go from three pounds to uh, less than one pound and eventually bounced to um, to four pounds. But uh, obviously it was a bit of a roller coaster. So that was an interesting dynamic. And obviously today we are an independent but fully owned subsidiary of Royal Bank of Canada. So again, a a very different dynamic. Yes, yes, a very, very interesting growth also for the company. Um, could you talk a little bit about your learning journey, uh, maybe the last uh, 15 years? You were an employee at that time, you didn't start as a manager? So I, I started um, as a, I basically created a new business line for the firm when I joined. Yeah. And uh, that was really one of the things that uh, was very appealing to me, having again sp spent years at different organizations before. Mm -hmm. After a while, you develop a, a very clear vision of best practice, of how you would like things to work, of how you can do the best possible job for clients. And in my experience, when you work for very large organizations, even if you're a team head, your ability to make a, a meaningful difference is someone, somewhat impaired. And so what was very, very appealing to me when I was joined by, sorry, when I was approached by the Blue Bear founders was the opportunity to build something from scratch. So they gave me a, a blank piece of paper. I was able to set up the investment process. I was able to set up the team. We agreed on the, 
on the vision and and again the opportunity to create something was was uh, very very appealing to me and that together with the fact that i was going to work with uh, people who had a, a very very strong reputation in the market and who i felt were well, going to make me a better investor uh, uh, this was the reason why i decided to join the firm in the first place mm-hmm. If we look at the company and the way it evolved from uh, 16 and today, is it still the company you joined? Uh, yes and no. And I think that um, on the one hand, of course, we, we are a much, much larger firm today. Um, and so you, you can't be exactly the same company. You are de facto a little bit less nimble. Um, there, are, there are many more employees. I always used to take pride in knowing every Blue Bay employee on first name terms. Uh, but uh, when uh, we ended up being more than 200 people at the firm, that became impossible and extremely challenging. So I think that from that standpoint, the dynamic is a bit different. But for example, the vast majority of the employees are all based in London. We do have smaller offices in Japan and the United States and uh, Luxembourg as well as, as Germany, but um, 350 of our employees are based in London and we're all based in the same building. So we've really made a, a lot of effort to make sure that we can keep our culture and to make sure that we are all uh, um, based together. But you're right to say that obviously uh, as the firm has grown, it's been uh, a journey and obviously we're not quite the same firm today as we were when I joined. Tell us how you keep the culture So to us, obviously, first and foremost, it's about identifying what your culture is. So as a management committee, we um, meet once a year and uh, we always make sure that we are very, very clear on what our key values are uh, and uh, what our culture is about. And then we communicate and communicate and, and over communicate about it. And so that there's always kind of brainstorming sessions and we all get a lot of feedback from our employees as well. But uh, I would say that uh, for us, for example, what we call, uh, we call ourselves stair stakers, I, again, we're all based in the same building. And that means that instead of shooting uh, email after email to your colleagues, there's nothing like taking the stairs and having a, a quick face-to-face discussion to sort out a problem or to uh, have a, a constructive discussion. So this is um, a core part of our value and, and something that we always try to make sure that everybody does at the firm. Things like um, respect, assuming positive intent, uh, trying to be content-rich uh, and solution-oriented. These, again, are, are key part of our uh, um, values as well as, as integrity. And so identifying these values Um, communicating them very, very clearly to our staff and also making sure that they are part of our hiring process is extremely important. Uh, ultimately, we are a, a, a people's firm in asset management. You don't really have um, big machines or hardware. The, the kind of uh, value of the company is, is really down to its people. And so uh, we need to make sure that we hire the right people at the firm. And when we do our induction, again, spending a lot of time making sure that the new joiners are explained these values, get to meet um, the partners and the, man- and the members of the management committee, and again, keep on hearing a consistent message. Um, lunch, we try to make sure that all our new joiners join on a Monday. And uh, if you really pay enough attention to these things and you make them a priority, then I think your ability to keep your culture will be dramatically improved. And in the management committee, you have people who have joined later or you, you have all grown uh, in, in the business that developed uh, uh, within the business like, like yourself? 
I'm actually the uh, the kind of uh, oldest serving member of the um, the management committee. Um, our two founders uh, um, uh, left the business a few years ago and organized very efficiently their succession from within. And it's always been a, a key objective of ours for every key position at Blue Bay. People have to identify a successor and they need to kind of train the successor. And when uh, they decide to move on, we, we then organize the succession with them. We are in a business where our clients don't like change. And they are investing um, with you, they are they are giving you their money, and one of the the things they use to make their decisions is your historical track record. So how well your funds have performed historically. Now, if if there is a lot of change at the firm, if the the people who manage their money or the people who lead the firm are new people, then it makes it much more difficult for them to choose you or to be comfortable with you because they don't they don't really know who you are. So again, for us, uh, uh, making sure that there are long transitions periods, making sure that succession is very well organized from within, that that is essential. And and the combination of that and again this strong culture that we have has allowed us to again. Um, very successfully go from first generation to second generation uh, a few years ago. Uh, by the same token, our, our investment teams uh, used to be run by their founders uh, and now are being run by what I would call the, the second generation, if you will. And because again, this, this succession was well-planned, well-organized with people from within taking new responsibilities uh, that has proven to work quite smoothly for us. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. And uh, what about change? You, you just talked about change and your client who, and the business, business where, with clients who do not like change, but at the same time, the markets are changing, the society is changing, the requirements and the, the framework is changing. How do you manage this? <laughs> not liking change and everything is changing. I think that the key word is um, evolution, not revolution. And you are able to do that if instead of being reluctant to change and then suddenly realizing that you're obsolete and having to make a, a revolution to adjust, you can um, try to be an early adopter, always be very open-minded, um, always try to identify new opportunities or ways to get better and preemptively improve the way you do things, be it uh, by hiring new people, be it by strengthening your processes, be it by adopting new technology, um, be it by um, going uh, uh, into courses to again be a better manager, for example. And it's it's this this constant willingness to uh, improve and evolve that allows you to do that without creating a, a revolution that would be a big problem for our clients. Mm -hmm. Let's go back for a moment, just for the, the changes that you've been through. And um, the, what were, in terms of uh, your leadership experience, the milestones in your journey? Can you, do you remember some really important moments in your leadership journey? I certainly do. Um, when, I, when I look back, I became a team head age 29 during uh, my experience at Invesco. And at the time, I, I felt very uh, um, ill-equipped to, uh, to lead a team, but the circumstances uh, led to that decision. Um, my boss at the time resigned shortly after I joined the firm. And because um, credit, which is my specialty, so corporate bonds were such a, a new asset class in Europe that really only came to life with the launch of the euro, 
there wasn't that much expertise around. And so it was very, very difficult to find a very experienced individual to lead the group. And so um, I was convinced to, to take on that challenge. And when I look back, um, I, I was clearly uh, very inexperienced uh, as a leader. And what's a bit crazy, and I think the mistake that many firms make is, A, you tend to take one of them, your best employees on the production side, shall I say. And, and by, by that, I mean that you can really separate the, uh, the role of someone as a producer, someone who really delivers on a specific job, and the role of someone as a manager, someone who, who leads others and, and really adds value this way. And certainly, until then, I was a producer. And I think there is a, a tendency to um, take your best producer or your best producers and make them the manager, partly because you fear that if you bring a new boss and they don't get the opportunity, they're going to walk away. But I think that's a bit short-sighted and typically the skill set that you need to be a, uh, an excellent producer and to be an excellent manager is very different. If I make a, a football analogy, the best football players rarely make the best coaches. It's just a, a very, very different role. Yes, there are some examples of uh, great players becoming great coaches, but there are also many counterexamples and there are some exceptional coaches who are very, very average players at best. And I think that too often, certainly in my industry, we make that mistake. And the other important point to me in hindsight and what's incredible is I was barely trained to become a manager. I didn't receive any specific training at the time. I think that I should have been sent on a three to six months course to really prepare me for the, the challenge at hand, give me the techniques and the, the knowledge to, to do a better job. So in my case, it was almost akin to being a parent uh, it's something that uh, you have to learn as you go and uh, you make mistakes and you learn from these mistakes and, and over time you become much better at your job. But that was definitely a, a key milestone for me. And when I joined Blue Bay, uh, obviously I was I already had almost three years experience as a, as a team head. And in my experience, when you launch a new team from scratch, it's actually an easier um, experience because um, uh, you already have a, a pretty clear vision and so you need to change things is less problematic so as a manager it's somewhat less challenging and obviously when I became um, CIO almost five years ago now um, one of the key challenges was that obviously we were a number of group heads and certainly you become the CIO and you have a number of your ex-colleagues your, your peers who uh, start reporting to you and so I think that treating them with respect not uh, uh, behaving uh, in a unilateral way, but uh, making sure that you get buy-in from them and you get to understand their businesses better and they really understand that the way you conceive your role is um, about supporting them and putting them in the best position to succeed. I think that that approach tends to pay better dividends than, than acting as the the boss and being extremely bossy and sometimes disrespectful with the way you deal with them. Sometimes you have to assert your authority and, and, and you have to use judgment to do that. But in my experience, if you can get people's buy-in, your ability to perform well as a manager is dramatically improved. Mm. Now, now you're the, the chief investment officer and um, a bit further away from the operations and at the same time, very present, but at the same time, you're not doing it anymore, or, or do you, are you still very involved in the in the operations? So for, for, for the first couple of years, for the first couple of years, um, I kept my, 
virtually all my old responsibilities as what I'd call a producer, in my case, a portfolio manager, so managing funds for, for clients day to day. Uh, and obviously, um, I was the chief investment officer on top. Um, and uh, over time, what happened is as I, I came to the conclusion that um, it was probably proving too much uh, and um, uh, at the same time, there was a new generation of very gifted risk takers at our firm who deserved more opportunities uh, and who deserved the the the, uh, the uh, opportunity to step up. Um, I took that opportunity to basically slowly but surely delegate my uh, responsibilities as a producer and rely more and more on others uh, and really focus more and more on my managerial responsibilities. So uh, today I'm spending the vast majority of my time as CIO and as a manager uh, and far less of my time as a producer. Um, this, came, uh, uh, this shift came gradually over the years since I've become CIO. Mm. Am I hearing that you had at the beginning some kind of difficulties to let go of the previous role? Uh, there's definitely an element of that. A, because uh, you always love to make a difference. And, and so uh, obviously it's, it's never easy to, um, to uh, give up responsibilities. Um, and also because the, um, the job of portfolio manager I find extremely exciting and, and enjoyable. You know, we, we are very lucky uh, in our jobs. We have to be on top of the news flow all the time. There's no routine. Every day is different. Um, that that's really important. I think also, you know, you've um, uh, your reputation is everything in our market, um, and so um, when you are going to to delegate some of the restaking, you you really want to be hundred percent sure that the people who who are gradually uh, doing it more and more on your behalf um, have been very very well trained and are ready for it, because you you, you can't afford to to make a mistake. Again, you're you're managing other people's money. Uh, and so you need to make sure that you're doing everything you can to preserve your cap their capital to obviously uh, uh, generate a strong investment return for them. And so the, we are in an industry where you, you don't just try it out and if it works great, if it doesn't work, you do something else. You, you have to be very gradual and prudent in the way you implement change and be extremely confident that the change is for the best and is not going to lead to a, a worse experience for your clients. Mm. What was your most valuable uh, lesson when becoming a, a chief uh, investment officer in changing completely into this position? So I think the, the lessons I, I, I used from the past to help me in the new role were, um, A, obviously the, the experience I went through when I, I became a team head and the, the managerial experiences that I picked up over the years. So the importance of having a, a very clear vision a very clear plan, a very clear set of objectives and communicating and sometimes even over communicating that vision so that everybody really understands it, everybody buys into it and everybody pulls in the same direction. If you think about it, if you take a step back, um, it is quite unique and uh, man is probably the only species on earth that is able to do that, to have a very large group of people sharing a, a common set of values and, 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 and all potentially behaving as, as one and pulling in the same direction and feeling that they, they belong to the same place. And that's one of the reasons why man has been so spectacularly successful to the, its very, very dominant position today. 
Um, and I think that this is something that, that is not necessarily that natural. So it's something that always needs to be worked on very, very hard. And, and, and that to me is, is primarily what leadership is about. So you need to work very, very well with other members of the management committee. You can disagree within closed doors and you should always be prepared to have the kind of relationship where you challenge one another, where you um, air your differences of opinions, where you can also give useful feedback to your peers. Um, uh, I always like my peers to tell me what I should start doing, continue to do and stop doing. And I try to do the same with them because when you, when you get to a, um, um, a certain level at a firm, the, the quality of the feedback you get uh, uh, can, be, uh, can be challenging. But very importantly, while, while you may have disagreements within the management committee, once you've agreed on something, it needs to be what we call a hard yes. So not a soft yes, where you kind of say yes, but you, you kind of not convinced inside. You really need to kind of, again, even if it wasn't your idea initially, really come with a hard yes. And then there can be a, a cigarette, there cannot be a cigarette paper between you as far as the outside world is concerned. So um, when, when employees come to us, we really always need to be very united in the same way parents need to be united vis-a-vis -vis their children. If they always contradict each other and so on, the kids will be, confused at best uh, uh, will take advantage of it at worst and you have to be very very careful with that and I think that's one of the, the key lessons that, uh, that I've learned uh, over the years and that's helped me very much in my position as CIO. Thank you. Let's have a look now at what is happening outside uh, your company and the impact it has on you on your role on the organization. Um, I'm very interested let's have a look first at the past and then we'll look at the future. Sure. Um, ten years ago, the financial crisis, Lehman's brother, it, it was a huge wave on, uh, on, on the market and something really, really dramatic happening. How? You were there. You experienced it. So can you remember um, how it changed you? Well, it was the ultimate stress test. And so, as always, when you go through a, a very stressful period um, with uh, um, probably a, a once-in-a-lifetime environment regarding uncertainty, regarding volatility, regarding the, um, the, 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 the damage that uh, the financial industry um, did to the global economy, um, you learn a lot of lessons and um, that makes you, I think, better at your job. That, that is some very, very valuable experience that you can use in the future. Certainly, um, having gone through previous crises, uh, and for example, back in 2002, when the whole telecom sector was in, in big trouble um, in my world because of... Uh, these 3G licenses where they had borrowed way too much money in hindsight and, and saw a number of large European telecom companies in, in Europe were on the brink of insolvency for a while. And again, you, you make mistakes at the time and you learn from these mistakes and these mistakes will be very valuable in the next crisis. So we were very lucky in that back in the global financial crisis, we had been able to see signs of what was to come. And therefore, we were able to uh, position many of our funds, and certainly on my side of the business, position the funds very defensively. And I think that when you are reasonably well positioned going into a crisis, it makes it so much easier to stay calm, 
to stay composed, to take rational decisions and deal with the crisis well, whereas if you didn't see coming and instead of being preemptive, you're being reactive all the time, it, it, it puts you in, in, in a much more difficult position. So certainly one thing that I learned from the previous crisis is if you can preempt the next crisis and be ready for it, that, that's going to make such a, a big difference. And, and very often that's the way we can best serve our clients. Yes, doing a good job in normal circumstances is very important, but first and foremost, preserving capital and make sure that we do a good job for them during the difficult times is extremely uh, important and, and very valuable to them. And I, I'd say that also knowing yourself very well and knowing your team very well um, and having a strong process that you can rely upon to basically, again, help you take the right decisions during these periods of stress is extremely important. Um, in my experience, we many people tend to have two different personalities, one in normal times and one in period of stress. And you can do stress testing uh, uh, to help you with that, for example. You can do psychometric testing to uh, um, better understand your biases. Some people, uh, again, in periods of stress, will want to take away the stress at any cost and so will tend to capitulate um, on their investment decisions, potentially at the worst possible time, and, and it can become a bit irrational. Others become... Um, even more aggressive and want, always want to double up on the beds that are not working, which can be very dangerous as well. So I think that knowing your inner biases is extremely important in our world. Knowing the biases of the other people in your team and always behaving as a team, respecting the process that has been agreed is very, very important. And I think it's this combination of ideally having preemptively position yourself so that you can deal with the crisis reasonably well, having prepared for it. And at the same time, knowing yourself very well, knowing your team very well, and having a strong process that everybody will follow to make sure that you're very uh, logical in the decisions that you make. It's all these things put together that allow you to uh, deal with that kind of exceptional uh, mm. circumstances. Mm. How did the global financial crisis um, change the way you work internally because the regulations there's a lot of things have have changed in the in the in the banking sector and the financial uh, sector how did it change your organization so the first thing to say is obviously when something like that happens as a firm you need to lean, learn lessons from it we did some things well but we didn't do everything well so uh, learning from that and strengthening our processes and uh, um, uh, changing the business where it needed to change obviously was a, a key part of that. And these are the lessons we learned as an organization. And by the same token, regulators learned as well. Obviously, uh, the banking sector in particular went through a, an unprecedented crisis and some might argue really had a dramatic negative impact on the global economy. And I think regulators learned from that and, and, and felt understandably that they needed to strengthen regulations to make sure that this could never happen again. So certainly what that's meant for us is the, the regulatory burden has, has increased dramatically. Uh, and, and this is tough for uh, asset management businesses because it's happening at the very time when, um, because of the low interest rate environment, there's a high pressure on fees as well. So on the one hand, you, you are charging lower fees to clients because they demand it. So it means you everything else being equal, you, you, your earnings are down. At the same time, the burden on the regulatory side is going up all the time. So the cost of doing business, if you will, is, is keeps on increasing. The size of our, 
our compliance team, for example, has more than tripled over the last 10 years. So your, your, your costs are going up all the time, your earnings are coming down, and therefore your margins are getting squeezed. And so I think that it is no surprise that we start seeing so many merger and acquisitions in our sectors because again, scale suddenly becomes incredibly important and is the, the best way to deal with this environment. Um, so for us, it certainly validated our decision to sell the business to Royal Bank of Canada uh, 10 years ago. And we feel that we're getting the best of both worlds because we're still a 400 people company. We're quite nimble. We, we have full investment independence and strong operational autonomy. So we are really able to take advantage of our small size. But at the same time, we have the, the, the backing of one of the, the strongest organizations in the world. Uh, uh, Royal Bank of Canada is one of the best rated banks in the world and obviously we can realize a lot of synergies because we are part of that group. There are always um, unintended consequences of extra regulation and certainly in our sector one thing that I think is a bit of a shame is because of this this dynamic of, of lower fees and higher regulations I think the barriers to entry are much much higher than they were and I'm very unconvinced that you could have another Blue Bay uh, being created tomorrow and being as successful as we were because of uh, of these uh, developments. Mm. Let's have a look. Let's have a look at the future. Lots of things are changing and continue to change. Not only the regulations, as the regulation is now part of your reality, but um, the the artificial intelligence is is now playing a bigger role. For example, um, are you prepared also for that? Yeah, I'd say that you know generally, um, obviously, technology is 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 very very important nowadays, uh, including in our sector. And I think that again, as managers, we always need to educate ourselves, to be curious about um, how technology could help your firm, and try to look at opportunities to embrace technology to become more efficient or or to create a, a business opportunity. Um, my mindset is that I think there are things that men will always do better than machines. And certainly on the investment side, um, I'm, I'm a great believer that when it comes to uh, being creative, uh, identifying investment opportunities in particular, when there is a regime change, I think that men can do better job than machines. There are obviously a number of well-performing uh, quant strategies out there. And um, so that can be a, a real complement to uh, portfolios managed by people. But I'm personally a great believer that this is an area where typically men will do better than the machine because a lot of it is about meeting people, looking at it, at them in their eyes, really kind of uh, uh, being able to, to assess whether you can lend them money or not. Uh, based on their projects, but also based on 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 on, on uh, um, the, the the kind of uh, relationship that you build with them over time, and again, doing all your all your research, but also being able to deal with what I would call regime changes. I think this is something that a man does better. A machine tends to look at history and always assume that history will repeat itself, and this is where I think men can do far better. On the other side, I think that there are many tasks that are extremely complex, such as for us building a portfolio where you're, you're, you're managing a fund, so you have lots of investment ideas, but you have to put them together in an optimal way. Um, you need to be able to size your individual bets in the most efficient possible way. You need to understand the correlation between all the different bets that you're implementing. 
these are areas where machines, because of its ability to process much more information in a much more efficient way, can dramatically support men, if you will, and where I think mm-hmm. technology can work very, very well for us. So I think our vision is we don't want to be um, Indiana Jones because, again, you, you can't do everything yourself. And again, being uh, not embracing technology would be foolish. Uh, but we don't want to be the Terminator either, if you will. And, and maybe Iron Man is the right compromise for us. Mm-hmm. We, we're coming slowly but surely uh, to, to the end of this conversation. You've done a lot. What, what is it that is still interesting for you? You look at your future development as a leader. What else would you like to learn, do you think? Well, you know, you, you always have new new challenges uh, and new experiences thrown at you. And again, I think um, I'm very lucky to do a, a particularly exciting job. There are always new challenges, uh, again, thrown at us. I think Brexit is a, is a good example. We alluded to that earlier, but for us, it's an opportunity on the investment side, possibly, because we need to take a view on the, the pound, for example, on what's going to happen. Is there going to be a new election in, in the United Kingdom and so on? So that creates volatility if we, if we do our analysis very well, if we're rational in the way we invest. Hopefully, we can translate that into strong investment performance for our clients. I think that uh, uh, for us, it's a challenge as a business. There is a lot of uncertainty. It may be a soft Brexit. It may be a hard Brexit. It may be a very hard Brexit. Uh, but obviously, as a UK-based firm with a lot of clients based in the European Union, again, we, we need to come with a plan A, but also a plan B and a plan C. Do we need to uh, change the uh, legal setup of the firm and, and uh, have a lot more of our employees based in Luxembourg, for example? These are our questions that, that, and challenges that, that we face all the time. And by the same token, for our employees, I mentioned that uh, I've gotten a dual citizenship. Obviously, many of our employees are European employees who are, who are non-British. Brexit has created uncertainties for them. So again, making sure that um, we provide them with the support uh, on the legal side, on the HR side that they need so that they are comfortable with it. Uh, and also we give them visibility. Some of them may well have to relocate to the European Union, in particular, for example, um, when you cover clients that are based in, in other jurisdictions. If you're not part of the European Union anymore, you may have to relocate. Uh, and again, being transparent with them and trying to plan ahead without being trigger happy and, and, and taking decisions that may prove in hindsight not to have been necessary that's one of the, the kind of uh, 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 challenges that, that, again, as a, as a manager, you face and that, uh, that, that, that makes the job worth it. And what about your personal challenges? Have you learned everything as a leader? You, you, you never learn everything. Um, and, and I think that as a leader, one of the things that's incredibly important, we alluded to that earlier, is the feedback loop that you get. As a, a normal employee, you typically have a, a reporting line. You usually have a, uh, at least a, a line manager, often more people who give you very honest feedback, who always try to help you develop. And I think one of the issues sometimes when you get to um, top roles is that this feedback loop gets um, diluted. And so again, always surrounding yourself with people who are going to be very comfortable giving you candid and honest feedback not with the intention of being nasty, but with the intention of helping you getting always better at your job is incredibly helpful. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why so many top managers have coaches is because, again, they need this feedback. They're not really getting it anymore within the context of their organization. And so they need to get it somewhere else. 
I still don't know what you would like to learn. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'd like to uh, um, hopefully deal with the the next crisis very well. I think that's one of the, the key challenges that, that uh, I have in front of me. Um, I am someone who, who again, um, I think my, my natural bias is to be quite prudent and to be um, very careful in the, in the way I implement change. So I think having the opportunity to, again, force my nature a little bit when, when is necessary. Um, we're launching, for example, a new very exciting structured credit business, structured credit business at Blue Bay this year. So again, I think that I'm going to learn a lot from these, uh, these new experiences. And uh, I, I don't think I will ever be able to look back and say, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the real deal now, I'm the full package. There will always be things that uh, I, I could do much better. And to me, it's, it's all about enjoyment now. Uh, I, I'm lucky enough to be at a stage in my career where uh, first and foremost, it's about um, enjoying the job and uh, finding it rewarding. And so as long as this is the case, then uh, I'll still be around. Thank you. Anything else you would like to add? Anything? Well, I, I really enjoyed this discussion, Drisha. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, others will find it relevant too. Um, uh, I've, I've done my best to share some of my experiences, but obviously we're all different. Mm. Thank you very much, Rafael. Thank you. Was very, Thank you, Drisha. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Thanks for listening. That was another edition of Leadership Backstage. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. And if you want to know more about me or have a conversation with me, you can get in touch via dsh-internationalhr.com.